Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other podcasting apps. If you enjoy our content, please rate and review our channel, as it helps others to find out about our work. Professor Nadav Davidovich is an epidemiologist and public health physician. He is chair of the Department of Health Systems Management at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. His areas of expertise include health policy, public health, health promotion, and the history of medicine. Professor Davidovich recently visited University College Dublin School of History as part of the EU's Erasmus Plus program, where he was based in the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland. During his visit, he recorded three podcasts for History Hub. In this third episode, Professor Davidovich discusses evidence-based medicine from a historical perspective. Evidence-based medicine was developed as an attempt to ground clinical practice on scientific facts and diminish the idiosyncratic scope of different therapeutic approaches by basing clinical research on statistical methods, especially using randomized clinical trials and meta-analysis as emblematic methods. Since its introduction in the 1990s, evidence-based medicine, or EBM, became one of the most influential concepts in the medical sphere, from clinical practice to healthy policymaking. The development of evidence-based public health followed the emergence of EBM as an attempt to ground health policies and interventions on sound facts. Today, I want to present a critical evaluation of uh, EBM and evidence-based public health, discussing the limitation of reducing scientific explanation to statistical analysis and other empirical procedures by accepting an up-to-date positivism as the best form of valid knowledge. I would like to do so by presenting some historical background on the development of EBM and some epistemological analysis of its basic foundations. According to David Sackett, one of the central figures in the development of EBM, and I'm quoting, evidence-based medicine is a conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about the care of individual patients, end quote. EBM is rooted in five linked ideas. First, clinical decisions should be based on the best available scientific evidence. Second, the clinical problem, rather than habits or protocols, should determine the type of evidence to be sought. Third, identifying the best evidence means using epidemiological and biostatistical ways of thinking. Fourth, conclusions derived from identifying and critically apprising evidence are useful only if put into action in managing patients or making healthcare decisions. And finally, performance should be constantly evaluated. A crucial aspect of the claim that clinical decisions and health policies must be based on scientific evidence is to define what scientific evidence means. In order to do that, evidence was classified accordingly to a hierarchy of what was termed valid evidence, a hierarchy grounded on a very positivistic approach to science. In line with this hierarchy, randomized controlled trials, for example, are considered as the best evidence, followed by other trials, observational studies, comparison of descriptive studies, and finally, expert opinions and case observations. 
Meta-analysis, the systematic method of evaluating statistical data based on results of several independent studies of the same problem, turned to be even higher in this hierarchy, turned by some even as, and I'm quoting, the platinum student of evidence. The conceptualization of evidence-based public health follows the concept of evidence-based medicine. Thus, evidence-based public health was defined, I'm quoting, as the development, implementation, and evaluation of effective programs and policies in public health through application of principles of scientific reasoning, including systematic uses of data and information system and appropriate use of program planning models. Many see the role of evidence-based public health as a call for solid knowledge based on disease frequency and distribution, meaning use of epidemiology, and determinants and consequences of disease on safety, efficacy, and effectiveness of intervention and their costs. Thus, following this definition, evidence-based public health is mainly dealing with formulation of clear questions arising from a public health problem, searching for evidence, appraisal of evidence, and then selection of best evidence for a public health decision, linking it with public health experience, knowledge and practice, and with community values and preferences. Evidence-based public health, main tools and processes are meta-analysis that was mentioned earlier, but also other methodologies such as risk assessment, cost-effectiveness studies, surveillance, that is the ongoing systematic collection analysis and interpretation of data, and also expert panels that review data and recommend action and consensus conferences. While it seems that evidence-based public health practices are more diverse than of traditional EBM, in practice, quantified data serve as the pinnacle of evidence. And most discussion of evidence-based public health focus on enlarging the options beyond randomized clinical trials to observational studies common in public health practice. But what are the historical roots of quantification in medicine and how quantification that was actually mistrusted by many physicians up to the 19th century became such an important component in our days. Quantification in medicine is part of the growing trust in numbers that has gradually expanded to all aspects of social life during the past centuries. More narrowly, it is part of a process of objectification in clinical medicine that has been going on since at least the 18th century. It has been most evident in diagnosis, which has come to depend less and less on patients' accounts or physicians' subjective judgment, and more and more on objective signs that, in theory at least, transcend subjectivity and compel agreement between qualified observers. It is interesting to know that both advocates and opponents of evidence-based medicine have made the very same connection between EBM and the numerical method advocated by the French clinician Pierre-Louis during the first half of the 19th century in Paris. Yet while the proponents of EBM use it to emphasize the historical legitimacy of their enterprise, the opponents argue that there is nothing particularly original about EBM, or as they say, old French wine with a new Canadian label, pointing to the Canadian origin of clinical epidemiology and evidence-based medicine. We should remember, though, that while diagnosis of illness had by the early 20th century become highly objectified, the same was not true of therapeutics. Doctors and patients continue to define success subjectively. 
Quantification of therapeutics, despite some early historical examples, such as the evaluation of smallpox vaccination or scurvy treatment, continue to be highly controversial, as claims were made that one quantification did not work, many from a methodological point of view, both practical and theoretical, and second, the use of quantification in directing clinical judgment limits the freedom of doctors. Thus, historically, for centuries, counting and quantifying actually did not enjoy a high epistemological status by many physicians. And actually, doing laboratory work was considered to be the more important component of scientific medicine. The development of the pharmaceutical industry and its therapeutic products, together with the rise of more sophisticated statistical methods, gradually changed the place of quantification in medicine. The rise of new methods in epidemiology, mainly during the mid-20th century, and mainly the rise of the randomized clinical trial, the RCT, brought to the fore the practical importance of quantification in the clinical realm. Although the use of statistics in research with control groups and even with placebos exists sporadically, not only in orthodox medicine, but interestingly even in homeopathy, the Second World War constituted an important landmark for its adoption by the medical sciences. The link between the establishment, scientific community, industry, and the call of the hour, central in the development of new war technologies, served as a model that changed the perception and the production of science. From the lone scientists working in a modest laboratory to large working groups, access to massive funding, many by the state, and later private money, and the support of the industrial concerns. The world of clinical research also underwent a transformation in those years, symbolized by research into penicillin and streptomycin, research which in fact laid the practical and theoretical foundation for the status of randomized clinical trials as we know it today. This epistemological turn from the laboratory to the clinical and bedside focused how to authenticate medical procedures. It is important to stress that the flag bearers of this revolution were no longer the laboratory men who in a certain sense became a natural, almost taken for granted part of the scientific medical scene, but the clinicians, the epidemiologists and statisticians. At the time, the objective was not how to harness what is called in the medical school the world of basic sciences for the good of clinical diagnosis, but to give clinical practice the scientific respectability by turning the treatment interaction into one that could be empirically tested. A new research hierarchy as manifested in the medical school and textbooks was constituted. So during the last decades, research that was not randomized clinical trial had very little chance of being published in a leading medical journal. When in the early 2000, two articles were published in New England Journal of Medicine, trying to object to the thesis that randomized clinical trial is in all cases preferable from a methodological viewpoint to observational research, a belligerent editorial article accompanied them, arguing that these articles undermine the character of modern medicine and threaten to collapse the scientific order, just to understand the major shift just happening in a few decades. This process was accompanied also by the rise of new regulations and institutions regarding the pharmaceutical industry and the drug market. Randomized clinical trial became the gold standard for introducing new therapeutic agents, the sole way to guarantee reliable data on drug safety and, more important, on drug efficacy. 
While randomized clinical trial became the gold standard to assess effectiveness of drugs, during the same period, the field of clinical epidemiology, meaning the use of epidemiological thinking and methods, not only in population but at the bedside, emerged as a central for guiding medical treatment. Clinical epidemiology drew on the methods of epidemiology and biostatistics to develop systematic ways of ensuring that the best clinical data are collected and accurately interpreted, leading to well-justified treatment or managing plan. Clinical epidemiology linked to the call for medical education reform led to the introduction of courses related to what we call today problem-based learning or PBL approach in various medical schools, especially in Canada. Other initiatives that contributed in providing the foundation for EBM was the Cochrane Collaboration, an international network started in the UK that compiles evidence of what works and what does not work in healthcare, evaluating the medical literature in order to put forward recommendations for clinical practice. It is important to understand that from its inception, EBM was not only just about quantification. It was posed by its supporter as a deep epistemological turn, aiming to give clinical practice a factual solid foundation ground on use of biostatistics, an epistemological turn that expanded also to the field of public health. The translation of ABM to the field of public health created several challenges. Moving from clinical problem-solving approach to the population level, moving from treatment to prevention, lack of randomized clinical trials from both practical and ethical reasons, and the multidisciplinary quality of the field that involved both quantitative and qualitative methods. Nevertheless, quite quickly, evidence-based public health joined EBM and turned to be an important force within public health. Now, after understanding the historical roots of evidence-based medicine, especially understanding the epistemological turn that was actually deeply embedded within it, I want to turn into some of the philosophical problems that are inherent in these approaches. It is important to understand that evidence-based medicine thus is not only a methodological change, but actually a call for a paradigmatic shift. A paradigmatic shift that is mainly based on a very positivist approach to science, even sometimes called methodological monism, or even more important, based on a methodological individualism based on the assumption that we can reduce consideration of facts and the building of hierarchy of evidence that can take into account only quantitative methods. In recent years, some proponents of EBM and evidence-based public health had moderated the former rhetoric that stressed the inability of the regular physician to make rational decisions and that also present EBM as a Kuhnian paradigmatic shift. Yet even though you can find more nuanced expression of EBM and evidence-based public health in medical literature, usually the former rhetoric and logic remain quite intact when analyzing health policymakers' discourses. Decisions regarding allocation of resources, priorities in healthcare and public health programs, evaluation of interventions, all are permitted now with EBM language and logics. As a result, EBM is usually presented and understood 
only as a set of rational choices and piecemeal engineering, and not as related to conflict of interest, power, and values. Now, it is important for me to stress that my critique of EBM and evidence-based public health should not amount to the total rejection of using, of course, scientific knowledge in order to improve public health practices. The main question is to define what is the relevant scientific knowledge and if scientific knowledge that is relevant is only those found on quantification. EBM and evidence-based public health should continue to have a role in medical and public health practice. Yet, what I want to call here is for an alternative, much more democratic vision, how to incorporate evidence-based decision-making into public health and how we should develop it. This vision should not be limited to quantitative thinking, giving a sole role to methodologies deriving from statistics and cost containment methods, but to a much more diverse mode of knowledge production. Only knowledge produced by a variety of disciplines, ranging from biomedical sciences to social sciences and humanities, and here I do think that history of medicine has a very important role. So a variety of disciplines, but also a variety of stakeholders, ranging from experts, but also to NGOs and communities involved, can inform democratic public health policies. The question of what should be regarded as scientific medicine is by itself a question that deserves historical analysis. Scientific medicine has been defined very differently in very different periods of times, and by understanding how evidence-based medicine has been constructed throughout the years, I hope that we can start and building a much more nuanced and complex understanding of the decision-making in health and public health.